amazing age of technology. Yeah. We have uh, three children that were with us for Thanksgiving from various parts of the country. And they were trying to help me with my computer, with my mobile phone, and so forth. And I said, forget it. <laughs> uh, what I'd like to share with you this morning um, is actually often called Paul's swan song. Now, of course, it's not going to be possible to go through the whole of Second Timothy, but I'd like to single out certain things in Second Timothy that I think are very, very important. Uh, reminds me of what happened a few weeks ago before we left up there in Michigan. I had the privilege of ministering in the uh, Berean Church, which is now called the Parkside Bible Church. They changed the name. And a uh, wonderful opportunity to share the Word of God. Fairly big church. <clears throat> and I was telling the uh, congregation well, actually, I told some of the people, we live in a condo association, and I was telling some of the people in the condo association that I'd be preaching in Holland. Now, we've been there in this condo association for 15 years, 20 years, a long time. And it's a wonderful association, beautiful. Uh, I mean, nothing elaborate like some of these more, uh, these gated communities, but very, very nice and mainly senior citizens, so it's fairly quiet. And I was telling them that uh, I was speaking, and, uh, oh, we'll be there then. So by the time the third Sunday came, the whole pew was filled with people from that uh, condo association. But I was telling them that uh, it's difficult to know sometimes where to begin when you're preaching a message that's on your heart. And so that I, re I reminded them of Alice in Wonderland. Now, what on earth does Alice in Wonderland have to do with where do you begin a message? Well, apparently, the white rabbit was talking to the king in Alice in Wonderland, and he'd asked the king, he said, now, where shall I begin? And the king said, well, begin at the beginning. Then go all the way to the end and quit. <laughs> so I told them that, and this dear friend who's our neighbor said to me afterwards, she said, Henry, you know, you'd be a lot more effective if you'd begin closer to the end. <laughs> uh, and there's some truth in that. While our children were here, we were trying to make arrangements for our departure to be with the Lord, uh, which is going to come someday. But uh, they kept saying, don't talk about it. You're going to be here for a lot longer. And I thought, well, that will be a miracle if I am. Then Sid tells me his dad's over 90. And I, that's hard to believe, but uh, I'm only 83. So I have a long way to go yet. But anyway, we were talking with the children about this particular problem. And Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy is a fairly young guy in charge of a very critical church in the town of Ephesus. 
And if you followed the reading this morning when uh, Brother David was reading from the Word of God, you'll realize that the church had some very serious problems, some very serious challenges. There was tribulation or trials. There was persecution. And there were many false teachers. So here's a young man getting a letter from, Timothy, from Paul who's in prison. Paul only has a few days left to live. And Paul knows it. And so he's writing to Timothy. Now that background is very, very important, you see. Because when you read the epistle, if you read it quietly by yourself, and read it with a sincere desire to pick up the emotional content, the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. If you read it that way, tears will begin to fall. So I thought that this is not my swan song. In fact, Sid invited me back sometime in a couple of months or so. So if I'm back here, it isn't my swan song. But I was so impressed by what Paul had to write And a friend of mine actually finished a book, wrote wrote a book, a very unusual book, in that he wrote it from the perspective of Timothy. He imagined himself as being Timothy, receiving this letter. And the whole commentary that he wrote, it's a very small book, is from that perspective. So there's a great deal in this book. Now, think about it. Paul is in this prison. And the prison in which he is in has no comparison with our prisons today. Now, in the work I did in the military, I had quite a bit to do with prisons. I was not one of the prison guards, but unfortunately I put quite a few people in that prison, picked up drunk and so forth. We're talking about a military situation And I often looked at those prisons. Now, I wouldn't want to spend any time in them. But you have no, you cannot even begin to imagine what this prison was like where Paul was. If it's the same prison that we've been in a number of times, uh, right near the Roman Forum in Rome, uh, there's a little church called uh, Giuseppe di Del Falignami, Joseph the Carpenter. And supposedly, the prison, it was right near the forum, is under that church. And you've got a very narrow staircase to go down, and you've got to be careful when you're going down. I'm glad I'm not going down anymore. I might fall all the way. But you go down all there, and here is this room. The only light was this little circular uh, room. There'd be a trap door of some kind. And that's how they drop food to people who would be in there. Paul was also chained. This is where he spent his last few days. And he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, what do you suppose he's going to tell him? Oh, you've got no idea what it's like living here. Boy, if you were in my place. Is that what he's going to tell him? Is that that's what he's going to share with Timothy? But I do think that there's something in this epistle for Christians today more than perhaps in my younger days. I mean, it's what is happening, what is happening in England, if I can just pick on England. When I became a Christian, 
which was a long time ago, more than 60 years ago. It was such a drastic change, but I remember the church I attended was a Baptist church. It was fairly full. And most of the churches had a thriving, this is just after the Second World War, by the way, just right on the tail end of the Second World War. Almost every church had, a, even the Church of England, the Anglican Church, there was a fairly good crowd. And the last time we were there was uh, two years ago. And we, we were going just about every year. And I'd always get a chance to preach. I could see it very obviously. I mean, it wasn't the churches, the numbers, and the, the, the unbelief and the, the attitude of most people as far as Christ and the gospel. Now, England has a tradition of being a Christian country. You check their uh, historical records and their, uh, the documents that make up our history, the primary sources. The theme of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at the names of almost all the hospitals in London, even today. They are St. Luke, St. Mark's. You can tell there's a strong Christian, or there was a strong Christian emphasis there. There's been a drastic change. And there has been a drastic change here in the United States. I came over here when I was about how old? 22? 23? 21. And... Uh, it seemed like the gospel was spreading and there was, a, there was a vitality involved in the churches. And in some of the churches where we preach today, it's, uh, forgive me, it's like burlesque. I mean, it's a ooh, slap happy, you know, and you don't hear, I can't even hear half of what's going on because I am a little deaf, too, but that would make a difference. Things are in a very serious condition in our own country. But nothing compared with what it was when Paul wrote this letter. Now, I want you to keep that in your mind, so if you ever get discouraged about what you see with your eyes around you, just think of what it was like in Paul's day and what they were up against. Now, there might be far more persecution in your lifetime, my time, lifetime. Christians might, and I'm surprised, by the way, that on television, some of the leading um, spokesmen, and those shakers and makers and, of our country, are actually beginning to say something about it. Christianity is a target of so much hatred, not only in other places in the world, but beginning in our own country. So it could get worse we do desperately need a revival, a Holy Spirit revival. So keep all of that in the back of your mind, will you, as we go to Timothy. What would Paul write to Timothy, this young man? Now, he's not a stalwart Hollywood-type figure. In fact, he's a weakling. He's always sick. He always had to take medicine, a little wine for the stomach's sake, and the oft-infirmities. So you have some idea that this is the guy that's supposed to lead the church here in Ephesus? Paul has to write to him. Paul knows he's going to be decapitated. What's he going to say? 
Well, all I can do is pick out the highlights of certain things. So open your Bibles. And we're in 2 Timothy. And all I will do is just pick out one verse in each chapter. If we were going to go through it, you'd find more of what I'm trying to say, especially in that last chapter, those eight verses which were read to us earlier. But in the first chapter, verse 13, I hope you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you're able to look at these verses. What Paul says here in verse 13 is, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, keep in mind, as I'm trying to emphasize here, the conditions, the environment, the culture. Uh, The church goes through various phases, the history of the church. And by the time you get to the or the 13th century or so forth, you have the word I used this morning when we were teaching on the book of Revelation. You have so much superfluity of human traditions creeping in that you have developed an institution, an ecclesiastical institution, which is dominating everything. Our founding fathers were well aware of that, by the way. And there was such a thing as the separation of church and state. But it didn't mean that the church had nothing to do with the state, but it meant that the church had no right to dominate and dictate to the people in the country. Which church, for example, would do that, see? But there was only one really dogmatic, powerful, authoritarian, ecclesiastical system. And all of it, so much of it, I have a little book, I don't have any here with me, uh, it's the best-selling book I ever wrote. Uh, over 25,000 copies were sold. I couldn't believe it. It's called Papal Power, Its Origins and Development. And it went all over the world, and I still can't understand it. But people were interested in the subject, you see. And let me say this also, by the way, in case you got upset with me. And people have been upset with me once in a while when I talk about this very subject. I love, this is going to surprise you, I love Italian people. I'm English. The Germans, the French, and most of the Englishmen don't care too much for the Italians. But my wife and I love them. We've been there, we've worked there, we've ministered there, I served there in the military. So what I'm saying has got nothing to do with Italians. It's even got nothing to do with the Cosa Nostra. And we ran into those guys once in a while especially in Sicily. And I had two of the lieutenants from the Cosa Nostra come and visit me to testify of what Jesus had done in their lives. That night, I I couldn't sleep. I was praising the Lord. I just couldn't believe it. And you don't, there's only one way you leave leave the Cosa Nostra, the mafia, only one way, feet first. Because they stick a double-barrel shotgun in your mouth and pull the trigger if you want to get out. That's the tradition. Why isn't they did? Why didn't they kill these two guys? I asked them that. I said, "How come you two guys are still alive?" Because I know enough about them to know what goes on. And they said we became Christians, and they thought that we'd gone crazy. And crazy people in Israel are sacred. 
You don't touch crazy people. And that's what saved them, the fact that they became uh, Christians. So when you talk about Paul being in prison, get the right picture. I mean, it, the circumstances. So abysmal that you can't even begin to imagine what it's like. There's no such thing as toilet facilities, for example. And you don't eat if somebody would drop some food down through that hole. And he's writing to Timothy. He knows what's happening because he's had other visitors. And the first thing he says, at least the first thing I'm picking out in the first chapter, is hold fast, hold it tight. The pattern. He's talking about a pattern, a form of sound words which thou hast heard from me. In other words, what I have taught you, Timothy, I want you to hold on to it and don't let it go. How quickly the church let things go. And by the second century and the third century and the fourth century, particularly the fourth and the fifth century, they had departed so far from the basic fundamentals of the faith, historically speaking. Oh, there was that remnant, as there always is. But generally speaking, they had been so far removed from the gospel. Well, this was happening so early in the history of the Christian church. So Paul is very, very concerned. Now, there is a pattern, and I don't want to get into this because that would take up the whole message, but there is a basic pattern of doctrine that Paul taught. And one of the most important doctrines that Paul taught, if not the most important, and this excites me so much, maybe you've heard the names of Hans, uh, what's, no, Hans uh, Kung. Hans Kung, the greatest Roman Catholic theologian of our generation, who lost his license as a theologian in the Roman church. He has just written his, he's 85 years of age. He just wrote the first chapter, the first book of his biography, autobiography. There's another book coming out, 600 pages autobiography. It is so thrilling. It just blesses my heart. He became a friend, a really close friend of the other great uh, theologian, Karl Barth. Both are from Switzerland. And I had to read Karl Barth when I was in seminary for a while there. And I'll tell you, he is a scholar of scholars. But, oh, what a wonderful guy when these guys came to see the truth of the gospel. What a made a, a brilliant, just brilliant men. I mean, I can't even begin to touch the hem of the garment of the brilliance of these men. And yet, I remember when Karl Barth came to the United States, they both have received so many PhDs from so many universities, honorary from the greatest universities on the faith of the earth, but I can't, every time I hear this story, it just thrills my heart. When Carbot landed at New York, first visit to the United States, there were flocks of news reporters there waiting for him. And finally one of them said, Dr. Bart, would you please share something with this deep, really deep, theologically speaking, and Carbot looked at them, and he did this great deal, by the way. He looked at them with a smile on his face, and he said, yeah, Jesus loves me. This I know. All the Bible tells me so. What an answer. Isn't that great? Well, when he's writing uh, with Kung in correspondence, 
They were joking about what differences it made in their lives. You know, the, the very doctrine I'm talking about, justification by faith. And Karl Barth was telling uh, Jung in his letter, he was telling him, he said, can you imagine me going? Now, at that time, he would have been the greatest theologian on the face of the earth, in the estimation of most theologians. And he says, can you imagine me going before the throne of God with my little Swiss knapsack on my back and telling God, look at all these books I wrote. He said, all I could do is say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Isn't that great? They've got the essence. And that's what Paul is talking about here. But you think of all your friends, good people, church-going people. When they talk about salvation, they never really talk about justification by faith because they, oh, no, 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 you've got to do something. You've got to do something. And yet explicitly and categorically, Paul says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. And it's by grace through faith plus nothing. Now that's very, very clear. So when Paul's saying to Timothy, hang on, hold on, never give in, that's what he's talking about in this verse. And would to God that all of the people in the church that followed did that. Now go with me over to the second chapter, and I have to move just a little bit faster here. I want to allow lots of room for this wonderful memorial here in remembrance of our Savior. Go to chapter uh, 2, verse 15. Now he's saying, hold on to it. And it actually goes beyond uh, justification by faith because he's, Paul taught a lot about sanctification besides justification. But now he says, I want you, in verse 15 of chapter 2, I want you to study, give diligence to show yourself approved unto workmen, a workman, Proved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So what he's saying is here, I want you to grab this patent, but I want you to study it. I want you to think about it. And more than that, by the way, did you know that this Greek word, rightly dividing, is only found once in the Greek Old Testament? Only once. It's found in the book of Proverbs. And if I told you which verse, some of you would be surprised. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. And if you know those verses, what the writer of the book of Proverbs, the wisest of the wise, is telling those to whom are going to read his book, he's telling them that you've got to trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he's going to give you the right path to walk. Same word is the word right here. So what Paul is saying, and it's a word in season, you see how easy it is, whether you know it or not, to go off on a tangent and pick out some little doctrine that for whatever reason you think is the most important thing in all the world, and you talk about me losing my balance, you lose your balance theologically. Because all you can see... And I've run into it. I've run into it with some professors and teachers. The only thing they live for is to share the doctrine of absolute Calvinism. Five-point Calvinism. Ooh, that's going to upset some of you. 
They are more Calvin than Calvinists. Because that's all they live for. Now, there's far more in the Bible than the doctrine of the prominence. I mean, it's a wonderful doctrine when you go through the word of God and you see the absolute sovereignty of God. It's there in the Bible. But you can never, ever rule out man's responsibility. I don't care what you do. If you do, by the way, you've got a big problem on your hands. Because Paul's wasting his breath and the whole Bible are wasting their breath when they're telling you this is the way you have to believe, believe this is the way you have to behave, this is what you have to do, so on and so on and so on. Well, if everything is preordained, absolutely everything, whether it's that accident out there that might happen pretty soon as somebody gets killed, supposedly ordained by God, you've got a problem on your hands. Because you're no longer responsible. If it's all preordained, well, every single thing you do, because of the so-called absolute sovereignty of God, you've got a problem. But so do I, theologically speaking, because I cannot reconcile the two. But I do know from the word of God and all of the excitations in the word of God, going back to the Old Testament, to Moses, to Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. <laughs> it's there. And all the way through the Bible, even in the Gospels and even in the epistles, the responsibility is on your shoulders to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Enough said on that point. But what a wonderful verse that is. Give diligence, give all diligence to be an approved workman. Go over to chapter 3 now. And here's that verse that I quote a great deal, and it's a wonderful verse. In verse 15, we not only have to hold it, we not only have to study it, but in verse 15 of chapter 3, it says, and that from a child, a little infant, Paul's writing to Timothy. Remember, he had a mother and a grandmother that were both believers, which proves that it is important. In fact, what a verse this is. That word child, uh, strictly speaking, means a little infant. I saw some beautiful babies, little children running around here. That would fit. Timothy, from the time he was in his mother's arms and his grandmother's arms, was hearing the word of God. And don't ever be as stupid as I was. I was so sophisticated. You know, the military does things to your mind, by the way. There's a lot of value involved in all the discipline and so forth. But I somehow had the idea, why well, waste your time with children? Where enough did that come from? And I remember after the Lord used us to start a church, I did a complete 100% turnaround, and I was saying, we've got to emphasize the ministry to the children. And all that had happened was one of my grandchildren, one day I was talking to him, and in fact, there was two of them involved in this, and I said to one of them, there was a movie out, uh, something to do with uh, extraterrestrial beings, you know, and uh, out in space and so forth, with some crazy names in that movie. How old was he, Richard? Two or three? And I'm saying to he had just watched it on television. And I said, did, did you like that, Richard? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so I said, well, what do you remember about it? I could not believe it. That little child started repeating not only the plot, but the characters' names, which I couldn't even remember. There's something about the mind of a child, the impressions that you make on the mind of a child. So little Timothy had that kind of background, you see. Boy, that shook me up that day. And the same thing happened with another one of our grandchildren. I praise God for it. But when the church first started, we started on that subject. And I think my first sermon was education for eternity, something like that. Because I was so concerned about reaching the children. Because what happens when you reach the children? You very quickly reach the parents. And every single month, we had new people, new members going on. We just had our 50th anniversary. We were just there before we got here. What a joy it was. Because some of those adults with children were little babies when we were first starting the the church, you know. What a blessing it was. So keep in mind, when Paul says this, he's, he's giving you sufficient fundamental authorization for working with children. It's a very, very important ministry. Don't ever belittle working with children or young people. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect. The idea here is being uh, brought to a certain point in your life, not absolutely sinlessly perfect. And then he says, as having made that particular, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. One other personal anecdote or illustration. I had a a heart attack, and uh, for some reason, I had a a tough time recuperating. And uh, open-heart surgery, there might be others here, does something to you. (laughs) It... uh, somehow gives you a different perspective on life. And you realize how uncertain life is, for one thing. But it was quite an adjustment for me personally, because those of you who know me know that I played every sport that there was. I played to win, and uh, so I have that type of personality in my background. My daughter, how old was Hope? (laughs) And another granddaughter, I'm driving with her in a car, and I'm a shift, and I'm letting her shift, you know. And she's—I think she was eight years old, wasn't she? Younger than that. Anyway, she was quite young, and I'm letting her shift, and she turns to me and she says, "Grandpa, what's wrong?" Isn't that something? She had enough discernment or perception to know that something was wrong with me. And so I said, "Well, sweetheart," I said. Uh, I'm not well. And I said, I could be going to be with Jesus pretty soon. 
She was as quiet as you can possibly imagine. She sat there thinking as we're driving along. And then you'll never guess in a hundred years what she did. Oh, goody, 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 goody. And you know what she said? Then you'll be in my heart where Jesus is. Isn't that something? Well, what he's saying, what Paul is saying here is not only should you hold it, not only should you study it, but you should live it. And you can get that very easily out of those verses. Now, remember, he's talking to Timothy. He's got one more very poignant passage here, and that's over in chapter 4, verse 2. You get the significance of the sequence, would you, here? Because he says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, we're, the church is facing that kind of a situation today. But the solution is not to accommodate the church, accommodate the world, not to lower yourself to the standards of the world or whatever you want to do, supposedly to attract people. The solution is to preach the word. But get the sequence here. You see, you have to hold it. And after you hold it, you have to study it, meditate upon it. And after you do that, you have to live it works out, you see, because for by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. And you can see the sequence right there in those few verses. So the sequence right here is amazing. It's after you go through those three steps, you can say, now it's time to preach it. Because sometimes, you see, your actions speak much louder than any words which come out of your mouth. And if the actions are according to the word of God and you preach it, there's the power behind it. Shall we bow together in just a moment of prayer? Our God and our Father, we barely skimmed over the surface of these admonitions of the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith under circumstances that are beyond our imagination. But our God and our Father, we do pray that we will, as it were, covenant with thee at this particular point in our lives. And the covenant would be that we want to hold on tight And our God and our Father, we want to study it. We want to give all diligence to it. And Father, beyond that, we want to live it in our lives, our daily lives, in every aspect of our lives. And then we want to preach it, do the work of an evangelist, regardless of the circumstances and the difficulties. May we thus be found faithful. And we'll give thee all the praise. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Brother Sid.